0: The following podcast is brought to you by the fantasy animation research network whether you are a fan a writer an academic or anyone with a vested interest in the relationship between fantasy cinema and the medium of animation we'd love to hear from you and to get involved in our conversations you can visit us at fantasy-animation.org or on twitter at fananimresearch f-a-n-a-n-i-m research or on facebook for now i hope you enjoy the show Hello, listeners, and welcome to this uh, extra special bonus edition of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. Um, with me, Alex Sargent, and with me, Chris Holliday and our voices—if they sound slightly uh, transatlantic in their tone and intimation. international, yes—it's <laughs> because you're, we are recording this um, in our hotel room in the Loyal Inn in Seattle. Uh, USA. We've flown over here to take part in um, something we call SCMS, or for those who are uninitiated, the Society of Cinema and Media Studies uh, conference, which is a huge five-day, multi-panel, huge international conference where the the best, their brightest, and us,
1: um, all assemble to discuss um, all things cinema and media. So we are currently holed up at what we are terming Fantasy Animation HQ. Absolutely. And we're giving you a little introduction to what, as Alex said, will be a bonus podcast um, what we're going to try and do is give you a flavour of what it's like to be at SCMS. We're going to give you a sort of uh, a running commentary of where we are and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. We're going to interview um, a range of, uh, of scholars and academics and provide you with a few diary entries along the way to give you a, an idea of, of the trajectory of the conference, but also the kinds of, of panels and talks and, and speaker, speeches that we're attending. Um, so yeah, we're, we're kind of hoping to, to give for those of you who both are can't attend but also to those people who are attending and are listening back to this hello to those people
0: and to those who perhaps have, you know can understand what an academic conference might be in theory yeah. but don't understand what it might be in practice this will be a sort of nice um sort of snapshot on, on the kind of things like an audio postcard if you will of, of the conference
1: so um it's a bonus it's gonna it's a bonus episode it's slightly different perhaps from our normal normal um podcasts Mm -hmm. but we'll we'll do our best to to narrativize the whole process and and as i said give you give you listeners an idea of of what we're what we're up to i think it's
0: gonna be a lot of fun yeah Uh, i can't say that with all certainty because we haven't done it yet but you know uh what i
1: can say is that this is the second time we've recorded this (laughs) introduction because the first time we tried to do it as soon as we landed that didn't work because it was gibberish so this is now the we've had a nice sleep we've had some breakfast um this is the morning day one of the sms conference so we're giving it a second go to try and sort of resemble something that sounds like an introduction. Yeah, yeah. all right. Well,
0: sit back, enjoy the show, and we'll, we'll see you at the next stop.
2: When I fall in love, it will be
3: forever.
1: So we find ourselves in the beautiful surroundings of Seattle For University. I we wanted to do a bit more contextualise this five-day conference, what it means, uh, and why it matters for us as academics to gather annually in this way. Uh, Luckily, we've been joined by Dr. Kirsten Thompson, uh, an esteemed academic and professor and director of the Film Studies Programme here at Seattle University. Um, Kirsten has published on animation, which we'll talk uh, a little bit more about later on. Um, She's worked on animation and colour and advertising's relationship with the medium, as well as, appropriately for us, fantasy films. So she's written on fantasy films like Lord of the Rings in her work on contemporary VFX. And then finally, in her role at Seattle University, she's been part of the organisation committee uh, for this uh, year's SMS conference. So what a perfect place to start. Uh, Kirsten, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you. Thank you. It's great to to meet you. Uh, thank you. And be part of your podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yes, we have a, a kind of couple of questions. We'll, we'll move through um, some SCMS stuff, but it'd be really great for our listeners to hear a bit more about um, what you do, what you work on, uh, and your relationship to both fantasy and animation.
0: Um, so just as a sort of opener, just as I say, it, listeners um, have had us explain what the conference is, but we we're still um, jet lagged at this point. So perhaps you could do a better job. at And as your role on the organising, for those who don't know. What is SCMS and, and why does it matter so much to sort of our community of media and film scholarship?
4: Well, the Society for Cinema and Media Studies is the largest professional media film and media scholarly organisation in the world. Um, there's about two thousand scholars who are coming together wow. uh, this conference and presenting papers, but also running workshops on teaching, uh, hosting filmmakers. Um, who are talking about uh, professional networking opportunities, and we've also got a host of uh, screenings both on and off uh, the uh, conference site. Uh, it's an annual event held in different places each time, our second time in Seattle, because lovely. we love it so much. Yeah, yeah, lovely. Beautiful location. Um, is that
0: exclusively because of the craft beer? Or, uh, exclusively. <laughs> yeah. That was the uh, tipping point uh, <laughs> for, the, for the selection yeah. committee, I believe. <laughs> lovely. So,
4: um, yes, uh, it it's, we haven't met as much here um, and I think people really loved the last conference with yeah. beautiful weather and, um, and it's fun to be in a new part of the country for many uh, attendees. And, and why do we do it? Every year most scholars get together in a conference format and exchange our latest work, um, engage in uh, scholarly conversations but also look at big picture questions like what's happening to the academy, what's the job market like, where are our students going, all those key issues.
0: Okay, terrific. And again, just to sort of, we're trying to give um, readers an audio sort of snapshot of what kind of event they could expect if they came to this one day. So just could you give them a little go of what kind of things happen in there, what sort of events are organised, and perhaps maybe um, tease listeners some highlights for this year of, of things that are going on. Because or... there are many. There are many yeah.
1: highlights, and it's a packed schedule. It's it's, it's something that's sort of, um, yeah, in its scope and its variance and all the different moving, I mean, there must be lots of moving parts, but...
4: Yeah I mean uh, at any given point there's always five or six panels at least running simultaneously um, of uh, four to five papers in each panel. Uh, At the same time every year there's an award ceremony where there are key prizes given out in the field for best scholarly book, essay, um, teacher and so on. Um, There are special events organized so we've got Evergreen Cinema which is a Um, local uh, Northwest filmmakers uh, and funding organizations like uh, the Office of the Mayor of Seattle uh, coming together to discuss um, this new area. This is a growth area. Seattle's been a booming town. Uh, it's become a, 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 like a secondary San Francisco because it's, it's attracted so much of the tech industry and the video game industry. So this is an area of particular interest to our students who will be going out in visual storytelling yeah. for new media for the future. Um, so uh, bringing together both independent filmmakers to talk about their careers, but also how um, wannabe students, uh, wannabe filmmakers, uh, could perhaps uh, break in.
0: Yeah, it's really great to sort of think about bridging the gap like that. And we actually noticed that uh, sort of next door to the the Sheraton Hotel, where the conference is taking place here, is the Seattle um, Emerald City Comic Con is, is happening across yes. the road. So it's nice to see those two events happening in parallel and things like that. So obviously, it's a booming city in terms of. It's media a great populace. city.
4: Uh, we've got a Museum of uh, Popular Culture, which is mm-hmm. basically. Um, Alan's uh, um, personal collection of movie props, too, and they often have great exhibits on different things from Star Trek to David Bowie. Uh, So it it, it was originally formed as a music-specific museum, but it branched out also into film Mm -hmm. culture, so it's got a huge collection of sci-fi and horror, so many conference attendees will be also getting along there. To that, we've also got um, a tour of the Paramount Theatre, which is a beautiful old Art Deco.
1: We walked, yeah, I the wa- walked to your office this morning. We walked past. We walked. We're I think we was a lovely route through the Check through the out, city. Huh? Yeah, yeah. It's a okay. lovely
4: theatre, and it has a wonderful silent movie uh, screening Brilliant. series in the winter. Wow. Okay, great. great.
1: Now, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're the author of a number of works on animation, and you focused on a, a kind of range of topics. And I mentioned your role, uh, your recurrent research on color, which we'll talk a little bit about, mm-hmm. um, aesthetics, um, and the representation of Pacific cultures. Now, for the benefit of our, our listeners, would you mind perhaps telling us a little bit about what drew you to work on animation? Because we're currently, if, if you could, if only you could see this, you know, we're sitting in an <laughs> office surrounded by lots of kind of animation memorabilia and cells, and 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 scholarship and books and images, and it's It's kind of terrific, and I just wondered, what drew you to animation as a subject matter, and and perhaps why did you gravitate towards something like colour or something like uh, advertising, which is one of your other projects?
4: Right, that's one of my newer interests. Well, the first film that I saw was uh, Bambi, age five, so I think I was predestined to follow an animation path. Uh, All my life, I've had very strong interests in media in general, Uh, so the animation didn't develop um, as a uh, final specialty, uh, until probably midway through my graduation, uh, through my graduate degree yeah. at NYU, um, but uh, I've always loved Disney, and that's been my first passion in terms of my interests. Uh, but I also have broader interests in in comics, and I grew up reading Asterix and Tintin, and yeah. um, I just love those in particular. Um, and I was trying to think about why I loved animation so much, and in particular Disney, and um, uh, uh, and and what emerged out of that was. A particular interest in in the colour processes um, that were used by Disney uh, and their innovation, obviously, in Technicolor Four, being the early adopter in the industry that um, predated um, uh, famous films like Wizard of Oz.
1: Fantasy films, obligatory Mm -hmm. fantasy film reference (laughs) there. Wizard of Oz, also Gone with the Wind and all Mm -hmm.
4: those famous later Technicolor classics, Mm -hmm. right? And it was Disney that was innovating before that. Um, as well as other people like Ted Eshbow, who did uh, his own uh, Wizard of Oz uh, short. Yeah. Um, so I, I became interested in, well, why Disney, why colour? Um, I also had um, was really struck by voicing, and particular voice artists um, in Disney, like Sterling Holloway, yeah, yeah. who cool. I just loved, adored um, as the voice of uh, Pooh and and Car, the snake, and I just, um, just particularly liked... Um, the anthropomorphization strategies that Disney used, and um, as a child remembering the gossiping elephants, for example, (laughs) in in Jungle Book, which I absolutely adored. So um, I always came back to them. Looney Tunes was also a very Mm -hmm. important part of my childhood. Um, And then at uh, uh, graduate school, I was lucky to meet Chuck Jones, who came to class. That's where I got this cell. Okay, so
1: that is a cell of Bugs Bunny. That is a cell of Bugs Bunny. It's
4: actually from... Um, it's a still from one of Bob Clampett's um, films, right, right. but he signed it for me, and he talked oh, about his conceptualization of work um, and uh, uh, the influences that he grew up with, especially uh, the silent film industry. He used to watch Buster Keaton and others filming in his neighborhood growing up, so he was particularly attuned to um, pantomime, yeah, um, yeah, and brought that into his own work. But he was an incredibly literate man, and he just drew upon so much philosophy and and literature wow. in how he conceptualised Bugs Bunny. And some of that, of course, is in his books.
1: Yeah, let's read it. It's kind of two registers because I think we'd often you know, you see this is the golden age of American kind of cartoon animation and that sort of interplay and exchange between Walt Disney doing something very particular and, as you say, referencing um, a a hyper-realism, which is something we've talked about in in kind of previous episodes there, the relationship to the real and obviously Technicolor feeds into that, holding the pattern on Technicolor um, and then anthropomorphism. And then on the other side, you have the more sort of, I don't know, the uh, anarchy of of Warner Brothers. But I love the idea of, yeah, pantomime and and performance and, and... Animate, golden ages animation's relationship to something like Silent Cinema, which which yeah. seems a really fascinating place of, of exchange. And
0: animation is a technology that sort of enables or allow these things to be expressed.
4: Incredible flexibility, yeah. you know, which I think I see also in advertising, which mm-hmm. is why so much of advertising or why animation is used so much, especially in televisual animation. Yeah. But um actually what drew me to Disney was not necessarily the hyper realist. Right, right, you know, right that, um that term, but uh, I, even though Disney has often been talked about in terms of its sentimentality, almost a saccharine sentimentality, <laughs> a benign yeah. vision of a bucolic universe, you know, of, of, of birds and squirrels and things that help do help you do the dishes and things like that. Yep. Um, I was attracted to the gothic elements of it. So wow. the darkness in Pinocchio, the darkness in Snow White, uh, when the queen, you know, ultimately dies, yeah. and even b- before that, when she transforms herself. That I was just absolutely struck with. I thought, wow, look at these transformation scenes, some of which involve magic, but not all of them. Yeah, um, Is that
1: where you... Because uh, for me, you're absolutely right. Those moments are where, where we see the animation in... in and all the all kind of the flexibility of the animation, the ability to this is a, a kind of break from the hyperreal. This is this is something that could only be achieved through the qualities the, and the capabilities inherent to a medium that is founded on issues of metamorphosis, transformation. I mean, is, is that where is there we suddenly see the sort of leaking out of there, animation? There, we see There is.
4: It. There is. I mean, like for example, when the Wicked Queen transforms into the Wicked Witch, yeah. um, it's it's pure color. It swirls of mm-hmm. color. I mean, Disney is trying to simulate a subjective perspective of, of what it's like inside this transformational process, and the best he can do is kind of create a, a tornado of color, Yeah. Um, and it's really just abstraction,
5: yeah. um, wow. so
4: that's, I don't think he ever was that interested in experimenti- experimenting, he was right. quite negative to Oscar Fishinger Right. worked right. for him. Um, And he didn't want to go too far. He was very, very attached to the figurative. But nonetheless, I find these moments, also in Three Caballeros and Saludos Amigos, of complete, out-of-control, wacky use of color um, and uh, experimentation, despite its realist objectives, despite its desire to create verisimilitude. And that's what interested me. I went... God, what's happening here <laughs> in the pink elephant <coughs> sequence yep. of Dumbo? You yep. know, it's just erupted into the avant-garde. Mm-hmm. And there are similar sequences with Donald Duck, you know, turning into a flower and singing mm. in various sequences. Um, so in- is that the
1: kind of continuity with your more recent turn towards advertising, you said, that those, I mean, is that, is that the link between a project on colour and a project on advertising, the animation no, is...
4: No, no, not so much, although, of course, um, advertising can have these yeah. moments of mm-hmm. experimentation that it allows for, right, and mid-century modernism. Um, certainly, you have that uh, continuum between what's happening in the graphic arts, yeah. what's happening in design, and then that's also uh, coming into Disney's uh, um, design work with Tom Oreb, Leading the commercial work of um, making cartoons for Welch's grape jelly and <laughs> Baker's chocolate and a whole bunch of other things. So um, uh, apparently Disney didn't much like it and shut no. it down. But there's nonetheless been a long history of commercial commercialism in their advertising yeah. work. And you know that's what I'm going to be talking about yeah. a little bit um, with uh, my paper. Mm. Um, where I'm picking up, actually, I'm looking at a character that you might think as is, is, is fairly within theatrical, which is Ludwig van Drake. Right. Um, uh, and there's yes, a sorry, couple just of. Just
0: for f- listeners, could you just do is, who is Ludwig van Drake and uh, just give a quick summary of that? Sure. For us.
4: He's a character. He and was, for me, if I'm honest. Cause <laughs> I'm <very> Ludwig <laughs> van Drake is uh, Donald Duck's uncle. Uh-huh. And. Uh, he was the first character Obviously, creator, yeah. obviously. <laughs> obviously, um, and uh, some listeners might be less familiar with him, but interestingly, Ludwig van Drake has been resuscitated a lot on oh, the yeah. Disney channel in recent years okay. on DuckTales and a whole okay. bunch of other programs, so they've revived him. Characters like him and Scrooge McDuck, another relative of Donald, yep. um, have returned in new ways, and I'm interested in tracking that, because I personally just loved him as a kid. Uh, he was a wacky professor type, a kind of a stereotype of the absent-minded professor. Yeah. Um, German, like me, so I have a German background. And um, I found there's a, a German thread in a, a lot of Disney animation, which right. is apparent, of course, in Pinocchio and Snow White, yeah. um, that I find uh, interesting how they draw from a visual cultural tradition. Um, but I was more interested in, well, what about Ludwig is. He's, he's a new character created in 1961 to promote Disney's move into color in television. Um, they just signed up with NBC, and they're wanting to promote their rollout of their TV series, The Wonderful World of Color. They renamed the Walt Disney um, television series Wonderful World of Color. And he's starting to promote Disney's um, theme park, um, RCA television, and the NBC mm. network. So wow. he's an interesting example of... We, we think about advertising as something firmly se- separated from the theatrical and from entertainment right. and fiction. But my argument is, and, and Malcolm and I, uh, we have a book coming out, yep. um, is exploring the boundaries where that breaks down, where there's a lot more cross-pollination than we think.
0: That's terrific. Wow. Um, so... Uh, I think you've gestured to this in some of your answers already, which is which is helpful for me at least. But um, I'm interested in the place of fantasy in your work. And I think you probably, well, you, you're free to define how you would see yourself, but I think you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a quote-unquote fantasy scholar. And yet there's lots of threads in your academic interest in what we've just been talking about in terms of uh, Germanic traditions of the Gothic, um, mm you know, Disney's role in adapting fairy tales. Um, You've written and used case studies that have drawn from fantasy um, epics, uh, Tolkien being sort of a key example. Mm -hmm. So um, you're free to define the word fantasy however you wish, but, but I wondered if you could talk to listeners about what role you think fantasy plays either in your work as a researcher or indeed your interests or or how you approach any of these topics, um, right. just a bit more um, right. crystallized.
4: Well, um, I, w- I was thinking about fantasy because uh, interestingly, uh, Tolkien's not somebody that I, I, I was drawn to and I, mm-hmm. I was a particular interest more in the technical mm-hmm, innovations sure. that were brought about by massive software in creating and animating Uh, independently moving characters in crowd scenes in in Peter Jackson. Um, And he was a
1: pioneer for that kind of thing, was he? he, uh,
4: Yes, this was the first Mm -hmm. use of that, um, and uh, incredibly influential. It uh, helps convey the epic scale of his films, Mm -hmm. those huge scenes right, where um, uh, you have massive crowds of orcs or Mm -hmm. big battle scenes. All of that was enabled by this technology. So extremely important for fantasy, Uh, uh, cinema, um, uh, but also action films in general, uh, a number of other genres that use it and that have continued to use it. But I've always been interested in history um, rather than the kind of fictive world building that I associate with fantasy. Um, But then I think back to some earlier work where those two come together. And for example, uh, a chapter that I wrote about um, was Candyman, which I think is a great example of kind of fantasy blurred with history. Um, And Candyman, for those who don't know, is this uh, story of a horror uh, film about a man whose arm was amputated as part of a lynching. Uh, He was horribly mutilated and he turned into this figure with a hook who haunts people whenever they say his name five times in (laughs) front of the mirror.
0: It's and usually never say someone's name five times if they're the villain in a in a horror movie. Yeah, just as right. a right. <laughs> Yeah.
4: So I mean, but what was yeah. interesting was how this story fused spe- mm. uh, specific issues of racial history mm. in American history um, and contemporary politics mm-hmm. of Cabrini Green, which was this notorious project in the South Side of Chicago, right. and brought it together in a fictional, fantastic, uh, a mythic mm-hmm. story. Um, and brought in also elements of urban legends. And, the, and, and so actually one of my colleagues who is an urban legend mm. specialist, was writing about it from her disciplinary perspective. And then I, I um, ended up writing it as part of my dissertation. So um, so there it's about, obviously there is a, a, a magical component um, which is much more overt in Disney. Yeah. Uh, I think, and which I was drawn to, but it's usually the dark components rather than the detailed world building that yeah, attracts that's,
0: me. It's really interesting. I mean, uh, that that relationship in history you're picking out there and a the thread in your work. I mean, I remember Tolkien very famously described his work as history. Mm-hmm. He, would, he he hated the idea that he would you know occasionally we kind of as a fairy story or myth is another word he would use he didn't like the term fantasy that much although it wasn't used that much at the time and he hated the idea his books were allegories it was always no this is history but a sort of his um a his hist, an imaginative history if you will mm-hmm. and responding to certain sort of issues in in British past in, in British folklore and the politics surrounding sort of its um, su- supposed suppression after sort of the Gallic invasion. So it's interesting that you're using that term well, too. Yeah, um, but,
4: uh, well, I loved history growing up. Yeah. The films that I wanted to see was anything with a, a, a historical mm-hmm. period setting. So sure. Sword and Sandals were um, yeah. some of my favorites. Uh, mm. Spartacus, Ben Hur, Quo Vadis, these films. Even though, of course, they're they're completely uh, imaginary, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, um, uh, re- representations of the, the Roman Empire in various ways, and later stories like Game of Thrones and that are certainly mm-hmm. drawn upon um, that structure and... Um, Leadership and masculinity and all of these things that are investigated through it. Yeah. Um. You know, I have also written about um, uh, cinema scope and, and yeah. scale yeah. in in some of those Roman epics and how do we visualise it in the pre digital era and then how how was it? You know. Okay completely transformed as a result of new te- digital technology.
1: Uh, we are we are acting out that Venn diagram I between think fantasy and intu- animation. What
4: what intersects between history and fantasy if we want to be seeing them as binarisms, which they're not necessarily no, yeah. um no, sure. uh, is, is is this idea of epicness yep. and scale, you know, and then the immersivity which yeah. is um, offered by massive specifically through the fly-through, through, yeah, through yeah. the feeling like the, the frame becomes boundaryless because <laughs> it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's full. Or and everywhere.
0: And narrative is a sort of device to enter into this epic space. Right. Uh, the, the guide through it, right? But, yeah, uh, the, yeah, the
4: transformative, both phenomenological and psychological experience of this other world through yeah. a sense of wow bigness. <laughs> yes. um, and that is particularly offered. Now, it was offered in the analog era yeah. with actual crowds. Yeah. So, you know, Spartacus and other films literally had casts of thousands yeah. but you know uh, that's obviously become cost prohibitive yeah. now.
1: Yeah we now have fantasy crowds in every sense yeah. of the right, word. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well actually that leads us I suppose, nicely to when we think of bigness and epicness that brings us back to the beginning and SMS mm-hmm. <laughs> as a sort of big thing. Um what we thought we would do is we're going to end with three quick fire questions oh, yeah. that we are going to ask um everyone we put a microphone that, that in front we of.
0: We promise we won't scrutinize these. Yeah, yeah. So um, and I should also whatever. add for our
1: listeners you know we we're, we're going to give you quick fire questions um, um, if you don't answer quick fire we can edit it to make it seem like you answered immediately <laughs> okay, so so well, I wrote some down. they are they are they are <laughs> quick fire questions um, as I said, that we'll be asking everyone and I guess you can draw your responses from given the situation, given the room that we're sitting in, and the, the I can see in my eye line Donald Duck, and I can see uh, Bugs Bunny, and I can see um, Asterix. Um, feel free to draw from all kinds of media, film, TV, comics. Um, so I guess you you best ask I'm, the first I'm one, Alex. I'm
0: excited. I've never, I've never got to do quick fire questions yeah, before. I'm it's because really you excited. secretly want to be a game show yeah, host I, as well. I, I, I I've this in noticed past this before. I wish a career path I didn't follow. Anyway, right. So um, your quick fire questions are uh, favorite uh, fantasy that isn't an animation.
4: I'd say it's uh, the fool. Tassim sings the fool. Okay.
1: Okay, so that very. Co- is that part of your interesting colour? I feel like that's.
4: It's certainly a yeah. beautiful film uh, cinematographically um, and uh, the way that it transforms the world and location shooting. Amazing. Um, into a, a fantasy space. It's a, it's a film about storytelling, yeah. too. Yeah. I always end film with
0: slightly different angles. Yeah. It sometimes completely bamboozles me and sometimes completely works its spell. Yeah, okay, good choice. Um, favourite animation that isn't a fantasy?
4: Hmm. Um, James Whitney's Lapis or Thomas Wilfred's Luminous? Lumia. I, I love them both.
1: Okay, so... And,
4: and, and that, that can be arguable. Is it animation or not? We but won't
0: scrutinise, we'll just no, yes. We'll, we'll just <laughs> Yeah, we'll just... Um,
1: so could you give a one-line summary of so each of those um, light, animations, just...
4: Light and kaleidoscope. So okay. Lapis, kaleidoscoping light and yep. colour, and uh, Wilfred Wilfred's uh, Lumia is light. It's kind of glinting, scintillating... Um, reflective light.
0: Okay. okay. And, and this last question is purely because Chris and I have run out of ideas for future podcasts. So, favourite <laughs> fantasy animation? I
4: think it would have to be Pinocchio.
0: Okay. I right. Do you saying why, why? Yeah. Because
4: it's dark. It's uh, really well, yeah. dark. Yeah. You know, um, don't think of Disney as benign. I think it's really kind of uh, um, dark.
0: I think if we ever do Pinocchio, someone's going to have to hold my hand through the t- sequence where they transform into yes, donkeys because I still yeah. can't really watch that thing through all the way. I can remember. Being absolutely it's petrified. It's like a psychotic
4: thing. nightmare in absolutely.
0: a way. Absolutely, absolutely. give me Candyman any day of the week over that. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely.
1: Well, there we go. We'll do a double bill. We'll do yeah. Candyman and Pinocchio together at yeah. right last. Um, well, I guess we, we, we best get to say goodbye. Uh, Kirsten, thank you ever so much for joining us and for sharing your um, interests, your um, uh, attractions to animation, your research on animation, whether it's colour, whether it's. Um, a bit on advertising the fact that we like a bit of gothic mm-hmm. um, so thank you very much for joining us I'm for now excited up. for the conference yeah, uh, yeah. we better get there and register now
0: so, oh, yes. um, yeah. first we'll,
4: day day one today day yes, one today alright
0: so uh, listeners we'll see you in a minute um, thank you very much for joining us
4: today. thanks guys I got no strings to hold me down to make me fret or make me brown
1: So we have arrived at SEMS and we are live in the labyrinthine corridors of the Sheraton Hotel. Um, we've been joined by Professor Susan Omer, who works in the Film, Television and Theatre uh, Department of the University of Notre Dame. Uh, Susan, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, as we sit huddled in a corner, as, uh, <laughs> as I said. Uh, the, the first panel
0: is about to begin in about all 20 minutes and yeah, yeah. an hour. So, so we're, we're lucky to have you, like so thank you very much so for why joining us. did to run into you. Yeah. Well,
1: thank you. Um, okay, so um, what we wanted to do is talk a little bit about your work in animation, and particularly your, your work on, on the Disney Studio, given that you've, you've focused on the studio from a number of angles, you've looked at representation, you've looked at fandom around the studio. Um, but I guess from my perspective for the benefit of our listeners, would you mind telling us what drew you to the Disney Studio to, uh, as a topic area, as a subject matter, um, and perhaps where the idea to focus specifically on those areas of Disney came from?
3: First, it's really great to see you here at the conference. Thank you. Yeah, thank one you. of the joys great. of this conference is running into people you like and want to see, so, yeah. so welcome. Oh, thank it's, you. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. Um, I'm always happy to talk about Disney. Excellent. And in this case, um, what drew me to Disney was a paradox. So my first book looked at the work of George Gallup in Hollywood, um, mm-hmm. the, the political pollster who was known for his scientific methodology and, and really bringing some rigor to the political polling process. And when I learned that he went to Hollywood and applied some of those same techniques to film. I thought, now this is interesting. Because first of all, you have this symbol of American politics. And he's going to Hollywood, which has its own symbols and its own culture. And how did that clash of cultures work? So I was really drawn to the idea of someone trying to scientifically measure things that Hollywood thought was kind of mysterious and that they knew how to do anyway. Right, right. And of course, when you think of Gallup meeting Disney, that's even, to me, more of a paradox. Because you're dealing with animation. So here is pollster who wants to quantify people's reactions and he's applying it to cartoons. So I was really drawn by what I thought was paradoxical, kind of odd, Um, how exactly did that work? But what really surprised me was how much the Disney studio relied on Gallup and used various techniques that he developed all the way through the mid-1940s. I mean, it was really much more widespread and um, systematic than I ever thought. So it, even though I thought it was paradoxical and maybe funny that a cartoon studio would turn to gallop, Disney clearly didn't think yeah. it was. I mean, it was it was definitely serious. So chance you could give
0: some... That's really fascinating to hear, to the readers or the listeners. I don't know why I haven't quite got the format of the podcast yet. Yeah. <laughs> we speak bottles. into the mic, Alex. <laughs> we, <do. laughs> we speak. <laughs> <laughs> if listeners, what some examples of that kind of paradox, of how they used Gallup, and, and, and maybe just unpack that a little bit for them, for those unfamiliar with what, what we're talking about here?
3: So one of the things that they did was to develop surveys that the different animation groups could use in studying cartoons as they developed. Um, So they had a questionnaire that would ask things about, rank your enjoyment on a scale of one to five, or rank this character on a scale of one to five, or how funny were these guys, or how funny was this character. Um, And they also, another thing that that Gallup and Disney did in conjunction um, with one another, is they divided the studio into what they called the critical group and the non-critical group. So the critical group was anybody in animation at any level who had an actual understanding of the process. And the non-critical group was employees who might be gardeners, who might be secretaries, who might be um, in administration of some kind who were not professional animators. So that non-critical group was meant to represent the public at large. Now obviously if you're a Disney employee, you have some understanding of what they're doing. So it's not really the public at large, yeah. but they weren't as specialized as the animators. So certainly every feature and just about every short that the studio developed in the 40s was put through this process mm. often more than once. Um, and it wow. had it had drawbacks and benefits. Um, from an historian's standpoint, the data is just fabulous to see all these reactions and how it changed mm. over time. From the studio standpoint, I talked to um, Kendall O'Connor, who who described it to me as a process of torture because it was basically like um, Taylorism. You would get these feedbacks yeah. from the survey and be told, this is funny, that isn't funny, and you were supposed to respond to it in some way. <laughs> and he said that if you were a creative animator as he was, this just wasn't how you thought. So that you were... You were being told to create based on this data yeah but it's not something they had ever done or really anybody had ever done in animation so he found it very restrictive and very stifling it's kind of it
1: fascinating out. that i suppose animation is this industrial art form mm-hmm. and that, but also that there's a tension in that sort of interplay between industry and art and in this case creativity and you have these industrial scientific parameters that are being used to or, uh, I guess, as frameworks through which, as you said, through which the cartoons are being uh, modeled and managed. Um, mm-hmm. But then that comes into conflict with the kind of creativity of the individual. And, th- and th- this seems to play out, I guess, with the history of anime technology. You get it, technology and industry versus art and, and how the artists have to respond and learn and relearn, maybe, mm-hmm. um, the ways of working. So, this seems like a really interesting way into thinking about golden age Hollywood cartooning.
3: And Absolutely. I would say, um, I think that's that's very well put. And to build on that, it's particularly of interest at Disney in the 40s when you have a studio that's shifting over to a return to peacetime entertainment production from the war focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And trying to figure out where do we go from here. And I think that's one <clears throat> reason they turned to Gallup because they really did want some sort of guidance or insight or... Or some kind of information to go on for making that change. So yeah, it's also that yeah. particular historical moment, in addition to the industrial framework that you talk about. Ah, so that's there's true.
1: that there's that transition that the studio's making from that cycle of commissioned wartime yeah. right, shorts, right, right, propaganda right. shorts, mm-hmm. um, that to
3: the training films. Yes, yeah, and right. actually,
1: that's a lot of my animation students are really fascinated by thinking of Disney in those terms because mm-hmm. they're not. It's not something. i surprised
3: by that. Yeah, I had my students too that that they did this, even if you show them, say, the Mickey Mouse or the Donald Duck war, yeah. know, Donald Duck gets drafted, or uh-huh. um, Mickey painting the, the tanks with camouflage and getting lost in it. Students are really fascinated by that. I show Victory Through Air Power, and they're just stunned.
5: Right. Like yeah. Disney
3: could be so blatantly um, prejudiced yeah. towards the Japanese, or blatantly propagandistic.
1: Yeah, so that, so that as you said, that particular historical mm-hmm. and political moment where mm-hmm. Disney is moving or transitioning from one group of films that have a you know it's just a, a as you said, particular kind of propagandist function to the okay, so what do we do what now do we do and now? Exactly. how do we how do we manage that? Exactly. As you said, that peacetime period. It, this
0: prompts so, me to ask. This is a podcast segment you're um, privileged to experience now, season. Of, I get to ask an impossible question. This is Alex's <laughs> impossible question that is impossible to answer. But, I'm, but, he he taken international. International. but, but here we go anyway. Why? Yeah, here why we go. Anyway. Why am I <laughs> What's it? a <laughs> Which is sort of, what What was the audience, what did they find out the audience was like then, in the post-war? What were the tastes that they were emerging and what creative decisions as a company did they make to respond to that? There you go.
3: <laughs> this, you know, it, it, of course it varied. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I thought was interesting is that the studio was concerned that during the 40s, of course, Disney wasn't winning the Oscars anymore in animation, uh-huh. so Warner Brothers was coming in and MGM was coming in. And they were wondering oh, how they would compete in the era of Superman. What were they going to do? Um, so there were there was great doubts within the studio itself about what's the meaning of our animation in this changing period. Um, in some cases, the studio, I mean, I think what surprised me is here the studio commissions this work and the animators are told to respond to it. But in many cases, for example, with Cinderella, um, one of the recommendations was that they use contemporary swing music.
5: Right. rather wow. than their classical oh, songs. Answer.
3: And the okay. studio said, no, that's not what we do, that's not Disney. So at least among the higher ups who yeah. had been there for a decade, there There's was an no established order, sense of this is our brand, yeah. you know, that they use that word. Uh-huh. And even though the data you know is saying here? this, we're not going uh-huh? with it. Yeah. So the other thing that interested me is when they rejected it. Oh, okay. um, so for day-to-day wow. managing um, production decisions, they were interested in it, but when it came to big picture changes like wow. updating their approach, they weren't going to do it. So, there were almost as many refusals as there were acceptances, I think. Okay. But yeah. when it came to revising the shorts, these surveys were given to the animation groups and we were told to respond to them. Okay, so, right. they had to. Now, Pre-production features, process. Right. right the okay. features were a different matter.
1: Okay, I've got, uh, can I ask an impossible
3: question? Well, it's not, <laughs> maybe it's not an impossible question.
1: I just wondered, I guess from an animation studies perspective, is there, or have you encountered any challenges? and 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 clearly you've, there are bits and, and we still need to find out, but I just, yeah, I just wondered if there are any kind of challenges or, or, or roadblocks that you've come across when studying Disney and you know, have you overcome them? How have you overcome them? Because I, I find Disney animation, or certainly Disney studies, um, people have a lot to say about mm-hmm. whether in kind of behind the scenes technology, labor, though less is known about that, um, and obviously on-screen representation, which is quite a well-trodden critical path. So I just wondered,
3: yeah, um, as the
1: expert here, what, what were some of the challenges that you, Think confronts somebody who's interested in Disney.
3: Well, I think the biggest challenge that that you both know very well and that our listeners know is access. Yeah, I was incredibly fortunate that when I was working on this material in the mid '90s, yeah, the studio was relatively open, so I could get in. Okay, um, I was studying animation with John Kingmaker Maker at NYU. Wow, he was very helpful. Yeah, um, when I went, they were very gracious. There were no restrictions placed on what I was doing. Um, so but that was a moment and i am eternally grateful that i had that access Mm. because i don't you know you don't have it now um the other challenge was simply organization and i think this has changed so when i was there these documents were kept in what they call the chicken coop because i think it had been at one point it was this ramshackle maybe eight or ten foot tall little garage structure with um chicken wire and the the files were just in boxes. And I remember vividly reaching through sort of the wire to pull them out. So they were not cataloged in any systematic way. And I think that has changed. But I was surprised at that because you don't know what's there. So certainly another challenge is if you're interested in X and you want to check out something connected to it, it was very difficult to do at that oh, time. Okay. The other thing that I've, I'm very grateful for, for doing the work at that time, was that people were still alive to talk about it. Okay. So I was able to interview Kendall O'Connor, I interviewed Harry Title, who, um, who wrote the book Waltz Boys, about a lot of the production process. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was able to talk to Car Walker, who became one of the triumvirate that oversaw the company with, um, with um, Ron Miller and others. And he was, it's fascinating because he, I had read hundreds of his memos about these things. But when I actually talked to him by phone, he said, oh, I can dismiss this in about five minutes. So that's really history looking back. Wow. From his memory, it was just a blip. Yeah. But as somebody who had spent weeks reading the documents, and I, I could see it wasn't a blip. So I think, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge is access. Um, it's, to me, understandable that the company would want to to protect its intellectual Um, property and determine how it should be used. It's perfectly understandable Um, but one does wish that it would yeah, there's a
1: kind of cultural mythology around the vault, and the, yes. you know the yes. <coughs> re- re- films mm-hmm. released from the vault
0: and,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and stuff like this. I always picture it like Donald Duck's
0: vault in Ducktales—that sort of massive thing with all these sort of <laughs> archival material we can swim through one day. Um, I had a question about fantasy and the role mm-hmm. of fantasy plays, either in your work or in your interest in, in Disney. Um, mm-hmm. It's a term that some people sort of um, embrace, and some people perhaps um, come at from different angles. But I wondered, could you talk to? Um, listeners about what you think the role of fantasy plays in your work because obviously I think you perhaps say you're an animation scholar mm-hmm. first and foremost mm-hmm. but you must have to deal with concepts of fantasy or genres of fantasy in your talk so uh, perhaps you could talk a little bit um, about that.
3: Well it's one of the things I have really enjoyed about the work that both of you were doing is the way that you're opening up concepts of fantasy and, and looking at them in, in very um, critically engaged ways. I think for a long time I viewed fantasy as as equatable with science fiction Right. Um, and I, I admit, I'm really interested in industrial and economic processes. So science fiction was just like, it's over there. <laughs> and I will say, one of the things that changed my mind is, I was in L.A. for about a month and a half when I had a sabbatical. And we started going to, um, we saw the first Guardians of the Galaxy. And I was, I was just like this moment of, oh, I get it now. <laughs> this is so much fun. I yeah. loved it. Yeah. Uh, but that's a particular... It's a very self-aware film. Yes. It's one that undercuts itself. You you start off expecting, you know, this is a sci-fi, futuristic, other world film and then it the music starts and you realize this is really funny and then of course you be Groot and the other characters. And so that, that really changed it to me. I mean, I think I'm much more aware of fantasy now as wanting to deliberately imagine beyond our ordinary constraints of whether it's It's um, political systems or or gravity or or scientific systems. And so, of course, animation often does that. Um, But the other reason I'm particularly interested in fantasy right now is because I'm teaching a class on Harry Potter, (laughs) um, which has just been a joy, Uh, especially, as you can imagine, with undergraduates because they grew up with the books and then the films. Um, And the class, I'm team-teaching it with a colleague in medieval studies. Um, so we alternate. One week is medievalism, and the next week is um, the films is what we're focusing on. Oh, and how this is, how certainly medievalism infuses the films, but then what the films do to imaginative Yes, yeah.
0: And actually, we've we've talked about this actually already on this pod, this episode of the podcast with, with other people, which is that this linked history and fantasy has got to be really uh, well-wedded because fantasy is this open invitation to imagine other worlds, but creativity in a vacuum with no parameters is is nothingness, right? It's, it's, it's suction, and, and you need to... Basically, fantasy is usually a combination or an embellishment or an exaggeration of something real life, or at least um sort of social or historical or
1: political as you're saying so yeah. that's really fascinating mm-hmm. um i have a yeah i was just gonna uh, given that we are in the corridors of, of uh the hotel and listeners might hear people coming which, great, which is great which is which is, is, is live and is authentic um we were today. just wondering if you could give us uh kind of a, a couple of or brief sound bites what you're presenting for those what that will uh, miss it yeah today yeah no it's not today it's tomorrow yes tomorrow is animation day yes it is it's a really good which is great yeah so it'd be great to hear what you're working on and what you're kind of presenting tomorrow
3: I'm giving a paper called uh, The Mickey Mouse and Macy's Parade, and it's partly a pun on um, Richard de wonderful chapter in Eric Smootin's Disney Discourse about the Mickey Mouse and Macy's windows. So I'm looking at the, the framing of Disney within um, Macy's, but in particular the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Right. Because one of the things I'm interested in in Disney with the book I'm working on now is the way that Disney's... The elements of Disney that we think of as being Disney, say theme parks or parades or whatever, are are a long term of civic and national culture. Um, yes. And I think Disney learns this through collaborations with different entities, one of the main Macy's. Um, so I'm looking at, at the particular moments in 1933 and 1934 when Disney floats and characters start showing up in the parade. Ah, okay. And then they're tied into the department store as well. But they're really highlighted in the parade. So I'm looking at that. that. That locus, that moment in the verse.
1: But, but and also kind of how animation plays then. In this case, Disney plays
3: out in the world.
1: Exactly, you know, how we understand that's exactly right.
3: How that. it's positioned in the world, yeah. what Macy's meant, what Disney's meant. Because Disney appears in the parade at the moment of the Three Little Pigs, when right. it is when it is all over New York, when there are special screenings, yeah. um, when it's written up in every cultural magazine and newspaper in the city. And then the the pigs pop into the parade. So just the way that the characters are being positioned in different ways. And then Mickey Mouse comes in with the... I mean, to see another thing interesting about that period is the physical transformation of Mickey Mouse in particular. Because it's in the 30s, as you know, that Disney is developing this naturalistic style yep. away from the more um, um, imaginative and... and um, kind of elastic. More so yeah, elastic, yeah. Right? yeah, exactly, where the characters morph. And I'm always fascinated by the fact that so there's this great attention to naturalism and you've got a Mickey Mouse helium balloon, which is a completely different shape. But that's the shape that's out there for the public. For some reason, this really fascinates me, this... It's one more moment of Mickey's body, as it were, yeah. um, but it's really rather different from what's going on in the films, but there it is. Yeah. And yet, the other thing that fascinates me, and I, I will say, I'm looking forward to the comments tomorrow because I'm still thinking this through, is that we all recognize these different instantiations as Mickey Mouse. They're, that's him, even though they're wildly different. Yeah, sure, iterations. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. But we could all accept them side by side So.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, as the, the corridors pick up and, and we've yeah. got to get to okay. a panel here, I'm going to ask you three quick fire questions okay. to end the podcast. Um, favorite fantasy it film that isn't an animation? It
3: actually? would be, I swear, Guardians of the Galaxy 1. It would
4: be. Okay. What do you think of the sequel? Not so good. Though. You know,
3: I, I adore Baby Groot. I mean, what <laughs> can I say? It's, yeah. it's like the minions. What I love about the Despicable Me series sure. is the minions don't. Articulate with syllables, but they communicate through tone. Ah, so okay. children totally get it. You don't. Know, yeah. Kids can get it, but adults get what they're really saying. I love that working on multiple levels. I yeah. just find that fascinating. And Brilliant. Baby Groot is like that too. Just simply saying, I have Groot. I have Fifty-five. You 50 kind of times. get it. You totally yeah, get it yeah. as an adult. Yeah. I just adored that. I could watch that film. There are on YouTube clips um, stitched together, of baby group moments, and I watch them. I just think they're great. There
1: you go. Source (laughs) them out,
0: listeners. Uh Favorite animation that isn't a fantasy?
3: Well, you know, I was thinking of Disney, but one of my favorites is actually the film Ballads that you've probably seen. Okay. It's um, Eastern European. It's very simple. It's um, a platform suspended in space with characters on it. It's about the balance of power in the Cold War, but as they go from side to side they start tipping the platform and you realize they all have to work together so it doesn't tip over completely. Uh, In some ways it's very literal, but you get it in a little bit, but it's just beautifully done. I really like that one. Great.
0: And final one, favorite fantasy animation?
3: It would be Harry Potter. Uh. (laughs) It would be. It would be. um, Yeah, I have to
0: push you to which one here. It's it's it's
3: Prisoner of Azkaban. uh, One of the things, and you know, and it's because of Quaron. We just we were talking about that before the Oscars in my class. I do think it's a cinematography, hands down. You compare it with the others, much more staid. Even Chris Columbus said it's choppy, choppy because of he was working with juvenile actors, Mm -hmm. but Quaron takes it to a completely different level, and that's why we all like it. When you look at that cinematography that's why we okay. like it so that's my favorite at any rate Harry Potter good. terrific Susan, thanks so much for being yes on thank on the you podcast. My we all pleasure. better
0: better get to the conference now eh? yeah yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um but thanks so much for coming on and um this is we'll see you in the next stop
3: yep you bet uh, bye bye thanks
4: double, double
0: Joining us now in a bustling Mexican restaurant in uh, the uh, University Quarter of Seattle after the first day of the SCMS, a um, uh, day of packed panels and uh, exciting conversations. Uh, I'm joined here by Chris. You are indeed. Uh, and I'm joined by Christina Formetti who will be on our panel tomorrow. Cristina, welcome to the uh, podcast.
2: Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, we're all a little bit tired. It's, we're still a bit
0: jet-lagged and uh, I've ordered a beer and it's going down a little bit too well. So. Uh, um, we were this uh, a brief. A, we'll make this brief, but we wanted to do a quick wrap up of day one. Yeah. Um, talk about some of the panels we've already been to. Uh, where, where have we both been uh, this afternoon?
1: Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so I went to first thing. Well, first thing um, today. So a panel that was about franchises. So really focused on well, kind of multimedia franchises. So a bit on film, uh, touching on um, mobile apps, a bit of television as well. Um, so the first panel dealt really with. Kind of a range of topics. One was the relationship between multimedia and transmedia franchises, um, talking about really the relationships between texts in all of its forms. Um, we also had papers on cluster-based, so kind of like almost algorithms. So um, Jennifer Kim uh, did a presented a paper on, on um, the the way that some shows function as marketing for other shows through kind of a cluster-based approach, thinking about the role of stars and stardom as. My um, note is Stars and Stars is algorithmic, functioning as interstitials that take us from one show to another, um, thinking about Netflix. Um, then there was a paper on the industrial machinery of the How to Drain Your Dragon franchise, um, and kind of the relationship that has with uh, contemporary Hollywood computer animated film franchises, and its idea of how text can be both additive... Um, but also function temporarily as kind of stasis. They have to hold our interest. Franchises have to hold our interest, all these additional um, kind of building blocks, TV, film, et cetera. Um, Then the final panel was about, um, well the final paper was about uh, mobile games and the mainstreamification of certain mobile games. um, And really about uh, the the relationship to mobile games within the context of of, um, anime and effective amplification. So I like those, I wrote a lot of notes on the pleasurable, effective aspects of the franchise uh, and the idea of the story being uh, the kind of play mechanics of of kind of more recent mobile mobile games and mobile apps and stuff like that. So yeah, it was lots of lots to take in. I had lots of questions. We didn't have much time for questions, um, so definitely something that I will take on and, and uh, yeah, uh, thoughts thoughts I will pursue. Cool,
0: cool. Christina, where were you? Where, what did you manage to see? Um,
2: I was at the same panel, but yeah. I also was at the B panel, so the second session and I went to a panel that addressed the concept of neighborhood cinema. Uh, One of the papers, which was very interesting, uh, was looking at those uh, um, cinemas that are linked to craft beer, so they sell beer within the cinema, uh, but... uh, um, it's also a way to uh, rethinking at some spaces within the neighbourhood and getting people uh, to, to reimagine their neighbourhood while going uh, to, to the cinema. Um, but there was also another uh, interesting paper uh, looking at uh, um, how through animation or through comic books uh, uh, can be rethought some spaces um, some you know reimagining them as uh, spaces without time and place in the US.
1: So these were our highlights Alex what about you what were your what were your highlights of day one SMS 2019? Well I,
0: I, I as team fantasy I took in a panel on um, spiritualism and cinema um, which looked at the sort of hidden traces and links between uh, Spiritualism with a capital S, um, a sort of religious practice in the early nineteenth and uh, sorry late nineteenth and early twentieth century, and its relationship to cinema. So it was looking at how cinema was both a breeding ground but also a sort of stomping ground for spiritualist practice. Uh, and there was a paper on sort of spirit, spiritualist receptions of anti-spiritualist movies. So it was a really interesting panel, and it, it led to a really great discussion afterwards about sort of the classic Milliers versus Lumiere's distinction. Ah, something we how, know all too well. And, and how thorny that thing is, and how the best thing to do is sort of find a middle ground in between the two of them. Um, and how if we, if we sort of try to remove that binary, we can come to some really interesting conversations about what cinema is and does. So uh, there is... was no animation in it, but, no, I, no, but no, I wanted no. it to tell them all that... If only we were thinking about animation, we'd be getting Lovely. somewhere. Um,
1: Lovely. Well, that is our day one um, wrap up from yes. the hustle and bustle of uh, a restaurant. So we, we're
0: up str- uh, first thing tomorrow morning, we so we'll record something around that uh, with, of course, Christina. Christina, what what were you presenting on tomorrow? So, uh, in case we can
2: ask you then. I will be presenting on. Uh, um, social media profiles that work as mockumentary uh, autobiographies and they are profiles made for uh, cartoon characters uh-huh. so we, we're gonna go we're into all, that we're all,
0: we're all gonna be um, we're all gonna be there right early at 9.15 and I'm sure we'll have a, a room full of people ready to
3: listen
5: to us the smoke and blight with steam Is like an
0: Hello everyone it's day two of the SEMS conference uh, you're hearing the bustle and hustle of the street corners of Seattle um, it's morning everyone's out getting their morning bagels their coffees we have had both of those and are on our way to our panel which is a uh, first thing 9 15 a.m.
1: yep it's a, a pre-constituted panel which means we've kind of already gathered together the people um, that we know who are speaking on the theme of animation technology and identity you heard
0: one of them last night yes I Christina
1: Formenti. Um, we're going to be joined by well I'll be joined by Alex Sargent and Alex will be joined by me and um, we're also joined by Mihaila Mihailova who is um works and teaches film studies at the University of Michigan so we've got a really international panel uh, and we're all talking about the convergence or the intersection or the interplay between animation technology animation as a technology but also animation and technology's relationship to to ideas of identity so we've got papers uh, on mock documentaries and and, and Twitter and social media feeds we've got digital de-aging technologies we've got um, a paper on post-human cyborg femininity Uh, and we've also got uh, a talk from uh, Alex Sargent who is standing next to me uh, on uh, Disney's Moana and its relationship to hydrofeminism. But
0: well, what we'll do um, is uh, we'll we'll drop bits of it. We're not going to give you the whole. Panel, because um, for various reasons we can't, but we'll you'll we'll hear a little snippet of what it's like to be in a panel if you've not heard it before. Um, so Chris and I are just about to go in the room and, and get ourselves ready. Nerves
1: are starting to kick in. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but uh, we think we think it's going to be. I think it'll be fine. Well, yeah. And also, I feel th- like I feel like you feel like it'll all be okay, Chris.
1: Yes. And today's actually really Thursday is a, is or day two is a full of animation panels. So yeah. we're going to be moving between rooms, between panels, between speakers. Um, so we're really thrilled to be able to kick things off on what I'm terming Animation Thursday.
0: Yeah, animation uh animation. Sorry, fast. fantasy animation Thursday. Fan- yes, thank you. Yes, fantasy animation yeah, Thursday. Well, yeah, yeah. Um all right, well we better get to it because uh, there's an audience waiting for us hopefully. Yeah. Um and we'll um you'll hear us do it and then we'll talk to you right afterwards.
1: Okay, uh great. Morning everybody, thank you so much for for coming to this panel, this pre-constituted panel, um animation technology and identity today. Um so without further ado, I'll hand over to our first speaker, Christina Formenti, um from the University of Milan. So this is a a panel that we sort of put together and it's nice to be first in a room with people, so many people that we um, uh, know, countless friends and and kind of recognise their work, but also on a panel, to sit on a panel with people um, who are kind of researching, I guess, similar areas, but we we sort of came together, we're all members of the Society for Animation Studies, so it's really nice to sort of come together uh, and and start circulating or, or thinking about ideas, relationship to the intersection between animation technology, animation as a technology, and also the impact on identity. So, yeah, we'll follow the, the order in the, in the um, programme. So I'll hand over to Christina, whose paper, Forging Cartoon Identities, the Twitter Mock Autobiographies of Contemporary Animated Characters. Over to you.
2: Thank you, Chris, and thanks for organising this. So, uh, the development of Internet technologies has determined the emergence of new kinds of digital products, among which are official social media accounts of the characters at the centre of popular audiovisual works. That is, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram accounts that purport to be personal profiles of the characters of a fiction series or feature film, presenting them as if they were real-life human beings that exist in the social world rather than just in a world. And uh, are managed directly by the creators of the characters in question, or at least the right holders. As Philip Gauthier uh, points out uh, in his essay, Immersion, Social Media and Transmedia Storytelling, these social media accounts have been steadily growing in number in the last decade or so. And why are the Thank you.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, so next up is me. Um, so, <laughs> I've always, yeah, that's a bit weird. Um, so yeah, so this uh, paper comes out of I guess uh, two competing interests. The first one is my uh, interest in computer animated feature films. Um, uh, and the second one is a, a class I teach, of which there are people who actually are in that class or have taken that class before, on 21st century uh, Hollywood and kind of the politi- cultural politics of identity and this kind of question of aging. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about or make some sort of preliminary discriminations about um, de aging or digital forms of digital de aging within contemporary Hollywood. It'll be perhaps a little bit more web-like than linear um, as I'm trying to figure out and and fill my way through different kind of competing areas and competing contexts, ways in which to think about um, kind of uh, digitally mediated forms of de-aging. So first of all, I had to figure out um, whether it was even a thing. Um, And so I was looking at kind of contemporary Hollywood examples where there are examples of digital Um, de-aging. I won't talk too much about... Um, and then finally, I think it, it raises broader questions about what Hollywood does, um, can do and will do with, with its age stars and how it kind of engages with, I think, the, the, the transients of stars that are here crystallised at their moments of sort of iconographic perfection. Um, that's it. Thank you. So. Next up, we have uh, Mihaly Mahaleva uh, from the University of Michigan. Now, I'm not going to read her title out That's because... For- yes, so I'm not going to read out her title because there, there'll be a story behind her, yeah. her title. So, thank you.
5: Thank you. Thanks for putting this together, Chris. Um, thank you all for coming. It's lovely to see so many friendly faces. Um, so, yeah, there is a story behind this. So, as you can see, my talk today is not what's on the program. Um, and I was looking forward to researching glitchy girls and contemporary CGI as announced then a couple weeks ago there was a major glitch sort of in my own system Um, and so the resulting surgery sort of derailed my conference prep but this steel implant that you see there did provide me with basically some first-hand experience of what it feels like to be an artificially enhanced woman. (laughs) So with my apologies I will shift my focus and it's still relevant Luckily, to this panel, to a different aspect of contemporary visual effects relationship to feminist discourse, namely cinematic representations of lady robots. Um, So I'll be using examples from four films, these four, Alex Garland's Ex Machina, um, the live-action anime adaptations Ghost in a Shell, and Alita Battle Angel, and Blade Runner 2049. And I will look at the computer-generated artificial female figures central to these narratives. In the context of visual effects discourse and as visual effects themselves. Specifically, I will outline how their visual design and narrative framing follow tired patriarchal tropes. I will also propose a de sci fi text cast hypersexualized digital women to affirm computer animation technology's capacity to fulfill white male heteronormative fantasies while leaving little room for persons of color and queer representation. I have been thinking about these questions for a while but what finally pushed me to put pen to paper was Blade Runner in 2049. In that movie, the protagonist is a male replicant. This is why I believe it is worth looking at these films' treatment of artificial women as visible symptoms of systemic issues with Hollywood's approach to representation that feed off of and amplify each other. Thank you.
1: Thank you, okay, and finally we have Alexander Sargent from uh, Bournemouth University who's going to be talking about hydrofeminism, um, but within the context of uh, Moana. So I'm glad I'm going last here because this talk will make you
0: need the toilet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I haven't got through it yet without it too. In an essay entitled Feminist Subjectivity Watered, Astrida uh, Neomanes presents a creative conceptual framework for a new kind of politics of gendered identity based on the metaphor of water. Throughout this essay, as well as subsequent works, including an essay entitled Hydrofeminism or Becoming a Body of Water, I should have these up actually, um, and, and her wider monograph, Bodies of Water, Nea pursues her conceptual metaphor of water as a, fem- as a sort of metaphor for feminist subjectivity arguing for the usefulness in considering ourselves as primarily liquid-based bodies in order to tap tap into the pertinent class and identity politics of the early 21st century for neomanists hydrofeminism consists of an articulation of the politics of the body as well as a means of thinking beyond visions of identity favored within traditional humanist approaches um um, post-humanist approaches. um so to conclude um uh, I think there's lots of re- levels of resonance by which we might be able to sort of place this philosophical theory and the movie in dialogue and help the arti- use one to articulate that in the sort of tradition of film philosophy. It's still in quite early stages and I think there's lots of areas I could do with feedback on. So um, I'll end there and thank you very much for listening. Located to the Starbucks because we're in Seattle, so why not embrace cliches? Uh, and look who we bumped into. We bumped into uh, Dr. Murray Leader from the University of Calgary. Um, he's the author of Horror Film: A Critical Introduction and The Modern Supernatural and the Beginnings of Cinema. Um, the latter, in particular, I'm very interested in have used uh, as part of my ways of thinking through the role of fantasy in early cinema, so I was really excited to see his name on the program. Murray, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Well,
6: thanks very much for having me.
0: Um, So, Murray, I wondered if you could start by just telling our listeners about your research, what you um, have focused on throughout Mm -hmm. your career, uh, and crucially what drew you to researching on the issues of the supernatural and horror in in scholarship.
6: Yes, I I mean, I I guess it... uh it was something that was pretty personal in a way. Um, there, there was a time when I worked at a haunted house, or a place which contained haunted houses, let's say. Houses with the reputation of being haunted. And um, that was when I was about 18. And it's, it's not that I experienced anything, uh, nor have I any other time. But I became just very interested in the idea of hauntedness. Uh, and when it came time to do my master's thesis, a very natural topic occurred to my mind about haunted house films. And uh, so I wrote about a number of different haunted house films. Um, uh, the Legend of Hell House, which yeah. I later published an article on, was the one that I really cottoned onto. to. And uh, a kind of reflexive quality where they seem to be fundamentally to me films about cinema itself and about right. the experience of cinema going and seeing things that aren't there yeah. and so on.
0: In what ways do you
6: mean? Well, it's because you enter this special environment and then there are so many scenes in that film and many other Haunted House films which which are about vision, about seeing something, the ontological status of which is sort of unclear and which have this kind of proto-cinematic quality that they... Uh, res- resemble shadow play and that sort of thing but there's this great scene in, in Legend of Hell House where a character watches shadows on the wall start to dance and manifest and so on and it, it, uh, many
1: haunted house films do slightly similar things. And my animation like, senses are tingling already. Uh, <laughs> shadows no, on the wall. Exactly um,
6: so, yeah. yeah so yeah and uh, I ended up writing about a couple of haunted house films in my masters and, and my PhD. Well in fact I had planned a kind of sweeping study of the supernatural in <laughs> cinema and it ended up just being a couple of years at the very beginning uh, because I, I started to, as I read more sort of discourse around early cinema and so on and early film theory as well, it became very clear to me that uh, uh, the supernatural and the Victorian sort of discourse around the supernatural is one of the things that made cinema legible for people. Um, and I wasn't an angle that I'd seen written about very much, and uh, so I, I thought, well, this will be my intervention, you know. Thinking about, about cinema as part of the occult assemblage, or the supernatural assemblage in the late 19th century.
0: Cool so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you see, um, what the word fantasy means to you in your work, because I'm, I'm aware it's a very nebulous term. And what it means and how it then plays out in your research at all, or if it does play out. In your well, I, it's,
6: I, I confess, it's not a term that I've used very much, despite yeah. being a concept near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, yeah. I, I have been a fantasy novelist, and what's starting to feel like an earlier life. Wow. <laughs> I, uh, I, I wrote a couple of, of novels for Wizards of the Coast, which are tie-ins oh. with Dungeons and Dragons projects, and that's actually how I paid for much of my undergrad. In fact. So.
0: Give us a novel. Son
6: of Thunder is the is sort of the the one and what, and what
0: happens in some of well it's, it's, like
6: it's, so they tasked me to write a novel about barbarians okay and so uh There's and a few of them yes <laughs> and it was about barbarians who turn into dinosaurs that was like the that, that was my job uh some people here in seattle actually oh, yeah. remember, this is where their headquarters is um, and i i was like huh okay barbarians who turn into dinosaurs so I, I i crafted a kind of like monster within inner struggle sort of sort of narrative and i remember that reviews of that book said that the villains were more interesting than the heroes and i, I actually take that as kind of a yeah. yeah kind of a compliment but but they the <laughs> villains took up like about half of the book yeah. that i was well i wanted to make sure that their motivations weren't i'm going to do evil today you know that they, so my main villain was somebody who uh, has a position, is afraid of losing it. So that's his motivation to sort of keep what he has throughout. Um, and, and magic plays into that because he, he is a wizard. But yeah. so you're
0: always interested in the dark side of the supernatural. Kind of, uh, but I, I, this is
6: something that sort of I've sort of moved on from in a way because my research now, and I can speak about that more later, is about kind of the light side of the supernatural, and I've. Uh, uh, written more and more on spiritualism and studied more on spiritualism, and it's, it's, it's incredibly optimistic as a belief system, you know, it's a, it's a, that's what appealed to people, it presents an afterlife which is relatively free of judgment, where they were at pains to sort of put themselves at distance from Christian conceptions of, of hell, and of heaven for that matter, but it's a, the afterlife is just great, it's, it's great for everybody basically, it's not a space of punishment. Uh, it's, a, it's a space of transition and of perfection and so on. But there's like a, uh, a perfection that happens there and I was like every, like, like a lot of like young people when I was younger, I, yeah, the dark stuff kind of appealed to me, but now, now I, I realize like, well, actually there's much to be said about the light stuff and the optimistic stuff, which is very interesting too. Mm-hmm
1: and potentially more difficult to theorise or get your head around.
3: Mm, because
1: absolutely. Because of the, 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 the nice... I, I was wondering whether fantasy is the light version of Supernatural, which fantasy always dark. I don't really have an answer for that.
0: Often when people try and prize fantasy and horror apart, and there's no reason you necessarily have to, but yeah. when people do try to... Usually, fantasy is the reconciliation, horror is the abject, right? Yeah, you know, of, of the same subject matter and things like that. But it's interesting you, as you've got slightly older in your ears, reconciliation is uh, usually where we all come to, isn't it? Right. Yeah, so, yeah. Absolutely. So that's really interesting. You're working. We'll talk about it for more in a minute.
1: So I, I mean, you've described you described yourself previously as a kind of scholar of the supernatural, um, and also that animation is something that you sort of, like uh, quote unquote, neglected. But actually, animation is something that crops up a lot in your work, as a, perhaps as a reference point, so um, in the uh, Modern Supernatural book you have references to kind of key figures I think, certainly within histories of, as an animation scholar, somebody who um, looks at histories of animation, you talk about Jason and the Argonauts, a film yeah. that we've we've talked about yeah. on the on I the love podcast. that film. Yeah, so so, so so how does that work then? Because obviously we're, we're interested in the relationship between fantasy and animation and you're somebody that perhaps sits in between those two things. You. you Fantasy is something you, you engage with without engaging with it, and mm-hmm. to, to to create an awful play on words, is animation the kind of spectre that looms over your work it, because it does kind of feed into what you write about and it does appear. It does, yes, absolutely. And um, uh, this st- stuff, this
6: is sort of a, a byway that undertook me in my dissertation research about skeletons and about. Animate skeleton. yeah. skeletons. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah, yeah, so okay, there's just, another sorry. person who is obsessed with
1: skeletons. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so how? In what way? So skeletons.
6: Well, okay. So uh, I mean, it came out of interest in the X-ray and the X-ray as cinema's cinema's cousin or double or something like that. Both products of 1895, if one accepts the sort of conventional narrative of, of cinema's origins. Yeah. Mere months apart, and mm-hmm. that's you know the the. Uh, the discourse on the new photography, that label was bestowed on the X-ray rather than cinema. Plenty of evidence that the X-ray was the more sensational uh, new form of photography that it debuted in that year, in 1895. And um, there was a certain amount of discourse around this, but um, so what interested me was uh, so in in Melies's first trick film, in *The Vanishing Woman*, there's yeah. this skeleton that is the embellishment on the stage act. So the thing that is specifically cinematic about this transposition of a, of a time-worn act is there now. There's a skeleton in it, and it's it's a skeleton that is dead. Yes, it it just stands there. It does nothing. Yeah. Right? But then in later Melies films, while well, he loves his dancing skeletons, and if you look back through the history of uh, of the lanternic image and other places in, in, in magic. It's like, well, people love dancing skeletons. There's something sort of intrinsically interesting yeah. about a dancing skeleton or a skeleton that walks about and maybe takes its head off and, like, twirls it around and puts it back
1: on and yeah. all that stuff. I mean you've basically described the narrative of the Disney's the skeleton dance. Right. And, exactly. Know, the the yeah. way that, the, the and we, we I think we have thought about why does animation keep returning to the figure of the skeleton, mm-hmm. given that animation is this kind of broad illusion of life. Uh, animating the inanimate, and it seemed like skeletons were the perfect foil to play out some of those issues and kind of the playfulness of animation in general.
4: I
0: wonder if I could ask whether anima- whether you see a difference in animation and live action in your work? Because you're dealing with very early yeah. cinema here, yeah. so like, it's when the boundaries aren't quite so codified. Right? So d- would you classify the things we're talking about as animation? And if, you know, it would be interesting to talk about why not.
6: Well, I mean, it, it it occurs to me yeah, that yeah, yeah. Kind of go, well, okay, so the Lumieres did the Joyous Skeleton or whatever the name of that uh, that short is. That's an animated short of the skeleton who sort of bounces around, and it, it's not something you would expect the Lumieres to be engaged in, right? You know, it's one of these things which complicates the, that sacred dyad sure. of Lumiere and Melies, right? <laughs> okay. And um, and all of the dancing skeletons and ambulatory skeletons in Melies I mean, I, I think sometimes they're pro-filmic events, and, but just as often not. They're superimpositions or something, something like that. So I see no, no reason not to conceive them as animation broadly defined. Yeah. I mean, if one goes crazy, like one has heard the argument that, that uh, live-action cinema is a subtype of animation, yes. that a- animation is in fact the over-category. So why don't we conceive of it that way as the norm? Mm. And why is animation, you know, a subfield within film studies, or what, may, maybe maybe yeah. a parallel field? No, that's
1: absolutely right. This yeah. is something that the issue of genealogy, uh, genealogy and tradition, and and we you know, birth and beginnings, mm. those, those sorts of questions are, are ingrained within animation studies that are supported by broader issues of medium specificity and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And actually, animation's inferiority complex, more generally that it is, often conceived as, as live action's poor second cousin right. or, or that sort of thing. When actually. A lot of the animation historians try and you know let the, let the tail wag the dog and suggest yeah. that actually animation is, is the, the, the outer circle and live action is the inner circle. Well,
6: and I think a lot of this comes out of the fact that when the x-ray is discovered and when the fluoroscope is brought out a few years after, I think it is, that it's now possible to observe a living skeleton, which was previously unthinkable. The skeleton is by definition a relic. It's what's left over once animation has fled the human body. and. You know, I, I keep going back in many ways to the discovery of the x rays as this kind of black swan event. It's like this, this is something that nobody had thought about. Which, yeah. which cinema was not, you know, cinema was in principle anticipated. Uh, but the skeleton, uh, the, the X-ray rather, that's out of the blue. You know, Röntgen's discovery is something completely without precedent, completely without without any kind of emphasis. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And therefore fantastic. And yeah. therefore fantastic. A <laughs> fantastic, yeah. It's kind of
6: a eruption of the fantastic yeah. Yeah. through science. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Your, your, your book is called The Beginnings of Cinema, so, maybe, so all these things are part of these beginnings. I love that. Exactly, yes. In the in your work. That was the concept there. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> well, I think we got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. good. It's great. Um, so do you want to tell us about your, your work you're doing right now, and how do we extend this project further?
6: Yeah, so it's, it's related to that earlier book, but I'm focusing on uh, spiritualism in cinema and in the, in the silent era. Okay. Uh, and, and just for listeners that don't know, what is spiritualism? So spiritualism, with well, yeah, with, with a capital S, uh, and I, 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 you know, sometimes the term gets used so b- broadly as to be basically a, a, a synonym for spirituality, and that's definitely not what I mean here. Spiritualism is that speaking to the dead, right? Uh, includes mediumship but it's sort of broader than that as a movement, as a kind of cultural force that emerges in the 19th century and has never really left. There's, I wouldn't surprise me at all if there are spiritualist churches in the city. There, there's one mere blocks from where I live in Winnipeg, you know. Um, and, uh, so a, a religious or a kind of social movement against the uh, uh, AI stems from the idea that uh, not only is there life after death, but contact is possible either either through technology or the intervention of a human who acts as a kind of kind of piece of telecommunications technology, the medium. That's what spiritualism is. So one of the things that I've been looking at, and there, there are a number of things, but um, a lot has been written about 19th century spiritualism, and it's thought of as this 19th century phenomenon that kind of dies out in the 20th century. But that's really not true. It gets big booms in the teens and 20s. It sort of tapers off by the late 30s, um, and I'm looking at that later phase of, of spiritualism and the way that it interfaces with media culture, especially in the US and Britain. Um, so in particular, I'm looking right now at, at um, anti-spiritualist films, because this is the thing that's very important about spiritualism too, it inspires anti-spiritualism. <laughs> Magicians like Melies were, you know, they were anti-spiritualists who mocked their acts and said, we can do all the same things, you know. Um, but also fed off of, in a kind of symbiotic circle, the public interest in this idea. Uh, So what I've been looking at is the the spiritualist trade press in Britain and the way that they responded to the releases of anti-spiritualist films and they were very well organized and very vehement and were were able to launch kind of campaigns against these films which they said misrepresented their religion and uh, because these are lost films it's mostly through the trade press that I've been able to kind of piece together something about them. Uh, there, there's something about studying lost films which is vaguely seance-like in itself. <laughs> yeah. and I feel like I'm conjuring up some, some dead, yeah. some banished thing.
0: Well, the point was made in your panel yesterday, I forget who said it, but, uh, but actually if sort of, you think about film and watching films from the past, there's something seance-like about that conjuring yeah these dead people from the dead who are moving and acting as if they are alive, and mm-hmm. that being part of the attraction of cinema that we don't really acknowledge or even really think about. But yeah, that's
6: something I talk about in my book too, that, um, you know, I, I think about the fact that uh, uh, it was Balash in the 40s yeah. who had a piece called Why Are Old Films Funny? Well, I like to show this to undergrads because they <laughs> think that old films are funny today, and it's like in the 40s they were saying that old films look funny. <laughs> yeah. right? and. Uh, his argument is that it's because cinema is too new, because it doesn't have enough history for the earlier phase to be safely subsumed as history. So it's more like an old automobile looks funny. Right. right? Rather than like a painting from another period doesn't look funny right. by virtue of the fact that people don't paint that way. Anymore, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's interesting, but I, I think that when people look at early cinema now and even silent cinema and find it seance-like, find it ghostly, you know, I, I feel like maybe that's because there's almost too much history instead. that uh, There's so many people I've talked to who refuse to believe the cinema was a 19th century invention. It's it just it, that idea, the, the idea of Victorian cinema seems like a contradiction in terms, because cinema seems like a 20th century invention before its time. So this is one of the reasons why still today early cinema has this Oddly illegitimate kind of kind of status. It's like it just shouldn't be. This is a, a document that shouldn't be. You know, uh, it's uh, ghostly. It's uh, ghostly. Yeah.
0: It's really. And it, like, it you can, what your work does is, is it takes these historical moments, but says something about how we approach it, how we approach this medium ontologically and all sort of stuff. And I think like your work could be applied to. So when a, a famous actor dies, like, you'll routinely get all these people who. who jump home in their cars drive home and do a you know everyone watch the naked gun yeah the, the, the day leslie Nielsen died all yeah. that sort of stuff and what is that if not an attempt to reconnect with it's, the it's dead very I, sounds yeah. like
6: it and you know the connections between stardom and celebrity yeah. and and spectrality is something i've been trying to tease out uh right now and uh i have a sort of side project that's related to that and oh yeah i've, I've been yeah, yeah it's, uh, i have uh, my uh basement I've got like lots and lots of books about haunted Hollywood where it's like guides to where the ghost of this movie star and that
1: movie star can be found and so on. Mm -hmm. Well it's funny because this relates to to, and if I had a... um, trumpet, I'd blow my own trumpet here, but it connects up to the paper I gave this morning about digital de-aging and how obviously Hollywood is starting to use digital technology right. to de-age and age regrets and and, uh, and, and play with the um, aged bodies of a, s- a certain start. But but also it connects up with an area of um, posthumous performance. So Lisa Bode's idea that obviously digital technology can conjure actors who have died right. from the... And, and and suddenly we can have a new or can a Gladiator where Oliver Reed is part of that film mm-hmm. um, and Princess Leia Carrie Fisher can be part of the new yeah. Star Wars and it's that
6: so this seems sort of interesting and right? that odd there. stuff in the Sky Captain the world of tomorrow with Lawrence, Lawrence Olivier yeah, yeah. Yeah. so these weird uh, sort of
1: reconjuring conjuring of, of stars that are and in some cases through animation, but not necessarily always through animation. Yeah. But there seems to be a nice sort of interplay between what, what Hollywood does and, and how we appreciate stars who are no longer there, mm-hmm. and we, in some cases we know are no longer there. But part of the pleasure is them seeing, you know, seeing their latest their latest film or seeing mm-hmm. them on screen again.
6: And sometimes it's not even a dead star or what, yeah. like a sort of moment. I remember in in that um, uh, uh, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, late in the film, it's like. That's the Brad Pitt of the mid-90s. Yeah, absolutely. How did they get him back? Absolutely. (laughs) That is
1: is the... And and, and writing about Benjamin Button has specifically said that there are. There is a point in the film where he becomes the film and Louise character. Right, and right. That, yeah. And, that's, and that, that moment of iconographic perfection, where mm-hmm. that's when he was announced as a star, mm-hmm. and that's why it, it conjures up so much within us, because ah, that's the moment where I first saw Brad. There are certain actors and actresses that you never see young. I refuse yeah. to believe that Morgan Freeman was, has ever been anything other than about 50 mm-hmm. years old. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there is something interesting about a film that, as you say, takes us back to the moment where, yeah, that's that's Brad Pitt. That yeah. was when that was when he became his most Brad Pitt. His, his Brad Pitt- his, Pittness. Yeah. Um,
0: we, we better not take up any more time, Harry. So we will ask you our final Quit quick fire. fire. We'll let Chris do the Thank first you. Um,
1: so the first question is: uh, What's your favourite fantasy uh, that isn't an animation? Um, so, uh, favorite fantasy
6: film, I mean, I, I'm almost tempted to say Excalibur, although uh, I know that there are many things that are very problematic about that film. Yes. Uh, but uh, I like to teach it in, a, in the fantasy class because it just seems to exemplify so many of the things that fantasy does. That it, it is a film that's, that's entirely about disenchantment and about thinning, about that sort of that sort of idea of the decline of, you know... Uh, uh, of the, the sacred world where we like lived in union with the divine, and that it does it all clunkily, sort of. But it se- it always seems to me the most fantasy film. i say I don't know if it's the best because there's it's very sexist for one thing,
1: uh, but, but but it does it does things that we think or, or we believe fantasy films should do. Kind of that
0: Absolutely. Yes. And it's from that era the sort of early eighties where like, Hollywood just went crazy and thought, Screw it, let's make I, good I, much. I it was always thought stuff. that
6: a fascinating yeah. like industrial study could yeah. be done of that cycle those films were in the broad not successful and yet they kept making them <laughs> yes. like what was going on
1: so like, like the parts of the caribbean movies <laughs> <laughs> just stop now um, that's really interesting of these industrial moments where fantasy rears its, its yeah. head um, second question favorite animation that isn't a fantasy
6: favorite animation so that 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 this is the most tricky yeah, of these questions yes. uh, because just about any animated film that I could think of, one could hypothetically make a yeah. case for fantasy. Welcome to Wild world, yeah. yeah, this is the issue. I mean, one one film I was, I was sort of flirting with this idea earlier, and uh, like I was thinking about something like Waking Life. Like, is that a fantasy film? Its its format is certainly fantastic, even yeah. if its content it, it, it isn't, you know, in the broad. At That's least. interesting. Uh, but it the way that it's visually presented. Kind of makes it fantasy aligned to my mind. I feel like you could say the same about Persepolis,
1: you could say the same about yeah. both mm-hmm. Final question uh, Potentially the easiest or the harvest, depending on how we mm-hmm. go. Uh, the fa- uh, your favorite fantasy animation?
6: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to say Princess Mononoke there. Right, right,
1: right. Uh, it's definitely my favorite to teach
6: because okay. the, the students always love it. I, I remember seeing it in the theater when it, it played in the theaters for a brief time in 98 or 99. Yeah uh and i uh and maybe it's just i wasn't that familiar with japanese animation in general at that point but just sitting there in the audience and uh, with this sense of disbelief like flooding through everybody going am i really watching this you know is this really what's happening on the screen yeah and i feel like whenever i teach it the students have the same reaction like somehow this film does something which they didn't conceive of as possible in
0: animation let's say
6: yeah Um, Yeah.
0: Murray, thank you so much for joining us for a coffee
5: on the podcast. No Um, problem. uh, Have a great SCMS, and uh, we'll see you listeners at the next one.